Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you, Lord, that we can come together to worship together, to glorify your name, to offer ourselves, Lord, as an offering. You are worthy. And Lord, as we approach Easter, as we approach the cross and the empty tomb, and as we're approaching in it with Mark, Lord, I pray our hearts, our minds would truly be focused on you and honor you, Lord God. We give you this time and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I know I don't like try to harp on too much about sports, but I'm a big sports fan. I don't know if you're big sports fans, sports fans, but if you are big on sports, you're very familiar with conversations about the goats, right? Who's the goat, right? Now, if you're, I'm not talking about animals, so I'm, this is not a conversation about animals. And if you're like, what, what about goats? Not, not that kind of goat. Who is the goat or the greatest of all time, right? If you're a big sports fan. You've, you've heard those kind of conversations. Who is the greatest of all time? Player or something like that. And usually when you talk about the greatest or greatest player of all time, you can, they consider, they look at the talents. They look at the achievement. They look at the stats, right? And they compare one athlete to another and how, what they achieved, right? And sometimes it's hard to differentiate who truly is the greatest when you look at those things. And so usually it boils down to who performs in the clutch, right? When it's hot, when it's under pressure, how do they perform? Do they step up or do they wilt under the pressure, wilt under the heat, Right? So the greatest usually are the ones when it's the highest pressure, when the heat is on, they're willing and they come through at the end. What's interesting, when you talk about those players who are known as the greatest, the ones who are known to step up in the hottest moment, in the most pressure, what people don't often talk about, that those same players have also failed in those moments, right? They make the clutch shot, but there are many times when they've missed that game winner, that buzzer beater. They missed the game-winning touchdown throw, or they dropped the winning touchdown pass. Success, but also those moments of failure, it's interesting, diamonds, right? I don't even know what diamond, how diamonds are formed, right? Diamonds are basically crystallized carbon, right? And they're formed under what? Intense heat and pressure. That's how diamonds are formed. They need to have intense heat and pressure. And through the intense heat and pressure something beautiful is formed. And nowadays with technology, they're able to make diamonds themselves, right? It's no longer mining for it that, that happened many, whoever knows how long ago. Now they're able to do it because they can manipulate the conditions of intense heat and pressure to make something beautiful. And that's the theme we're going to look at today in today's passage. Trial under fire. What will come out of trials under intense heat and pressure? 
That's what the theme we're going to look at today. Now, last time in Mark, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus declare to his disciples that they were all going to fall away. In other words, that word for fall away, when they experience heat in the moment, they're going to be made to stumble. They're going to wilt under the pressure. And they're all going to fall away. And if you remember, Peter, Peter was adamant. Right? When Jesus said that you will all fall away, Peter's like, wait, 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 wait. Right? He was a little indignant about the idea. He's like, wait, maybe they will fall away, but I will never fall away. I will die with you before I fall away. And all the others, the other disciples, like, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. No way, there's no way we will wilt under the pressure. But we saw later on, Jesus, when he's praying in the garden, right? And he goes back to, the, to Peter, James, and John. What did he find them doing? They fell asleep, right? And what does he tell them? Right? Keep watch, keep praying, because the spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. So many times, right, our minds tell us we will be able to be strong. We will be able to step up in the moment. We're going to be brave. We're going to do all these things, right? In our minds, we want to think that we will be strong. But in many times, our flesh proves that we are weak. In that moment, we may wilter and falter and fall away in the moment. And so we're going to continue on in looking at Mark chapter 14, verse 43. And we're going to probably see that, you know, we can't put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, right? We can't relate to being Jesus in the moment, but I think we can certainly relate to being in Peter's shoes. Right? When we look at Jesus, man, just the perfection. And he'll be able to fully submit to the Father. And Sometimes we can look at that and say, you know what, I don't think I can measure up to that but I think I could relate to Peter's experience. I could relate to what Peter experienced in that moment. So we're going to take a look at that. And we're going to look at three scenes in this passage before we look into it. Three scenes. We're going to see the first scene. Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane. All right, we left off with Jesus praying, and he tells the disciples to wake up. His time is at hand. So we're picking it back up there. So we'll see Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane. Secondly, we'll see how Jesus is accused before the council, before the Sanhedrin. And thirdly, we'll see Peter's denial. So three scenes, right? Jesus arrested in the garden. Secondly, Jesus before the council. And third, Peter's denial. We're going to see two people. In those three scenes, we're going to focus on two people. Jesus and Peter. And we're going to see there's one similarity they share one thing they experience that's in common but they're going to be completely different outcomes we're going to see both individuals under fire and under pressure let's see how they respond let's pick it up in verse 43 and immediately while he was still speaking judas one of the 12 came up accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, he immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, if you want to get a full picture of this scene, a full descriptive picture of this taking place, you'll want to read Matthew 26, 47-75, Luke 22, and then John 18. Okay, if you look at those three other Gospels, you'll get a fuller description of what is taking place from the passage we read today. All right, Matthew 26, Luke 22, and John 18. Each of the Gospels add a little different perspective and a little bit of descriptions of what's taking place. It's interesting that John tells us that along with Judas, the chief priests and elders and scribes, came a detachment of armed soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. They weren't sure what they were going to walk into, right? So they came in with armed soldiers, And so Judas arranges a signal ahead of time. I will tell you who to arrest. And my signal will be the one who I greet with a kiss. Now, in our culture, that may sound a little weird. But in that culture, it's not a weird thing. It was a sign not only of respect and greeting, but of affection and fondness. Right? If you go into other countries, you may see people greet each other, kiss that way. But truthfully, when I think about this, this being the signal Judas chooses, I would consider this not a kiss on the face, but a slap in the face. Right? If it was me, if you had a problem with me, if you were going to betray me, I would rather you just do it to my face and just strike me in the face than give me a kiss in the face in betrayal. I don't know what would sting more. Don't test me, right? I'm not asking you to hit me in the face to to, to test me. But I would imagine the kiss on the cheek of someone who I thought was my friend as an act of betrayal would be worse than a strike to the face. And it's interesting that this is the signal that Judas gives, I assume, to the soldiers, right? I assume it's the soldiers. The chief priests, they know who Jesus is. I assume they're saying, this is the one to arrest, the one I greet with a kiss. Interesting. It's also interesting that Jesus is going to receive both, a kiss of betrayal and a strike to the face. Verse 46, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet covering his naked body. And they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. Now what Jesus is saying, he's saying, look, I was teaching on the temple grounds. You came up to me and challenged me. Right? It was just days ago. And I challenged you. And here you are coming up to me with armed soldiers. 
as if you're arresting a robber? Now we remember, right? Why is this? It's no coincidence, right? This is coming at the cover of nighttime. Why? Because remember the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, what were they afraid of? They were afraid of the people, right? They were afraid, what would the people do? What would they say if they saw us arrest Jesus? What case did they have? So here they are in the cover of night. No one's watching. It's in darkness. And they go to see Jesus, seize Jesus. Now some speculate this young man who ran, who was just wearing the, the linen cloth and didn't have much underneath and ran off. Some speculate this was Mark, the, the author here. It's speculation. We don't know for certain. It very well could be. Um, the reason why people think it might be Mark is because it's kind of inconsequential to the story, right? Kind of like if you add a detail that's not really relevant to the bigger part of the story, but it's a detail that happened, you're kind of like, why is this here? So if you ask me, why is this here? I say, hmm, I don't know. All right, let's move on. Verse, where am I? 53. And they led Jesus away. To the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warning, warming himself at the fire. Now, despite scattering at Gethsemane, right, when they arrest Jesus and the disciples scatter, I want to give Peter credit here. Poor Peter doesn't get enough credit sometimes. Peter still wanted to show his loyalty to Jesus. So we only see Peter here following. However, I don't believe this setting is a coincidence either. Listen to the description of where Peter finds himself. He's following, but he's following at a distance. And where he's at, he's not going to be among good company. Right? And he wants to prove himself loyal, but only at a safe distance. What will be safe for him. And notice, he's cold. He's trying to warm himself in the fire. It's interesting, Peter was allowed in by a secret disciple of Jesus, who knew the high priest. I think it's Nicodemus. If you read John's Gospel... You know, you may wonder why. I think it's person Nicodemus. He kind of led Peter in to be able to go into the grounds. But let's move on. That's speculation. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him. And yet, these, yet their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this respect was was their testimony consistent. And the high priest stood up and came forward and questioning Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now it's interesting. This scene brings us back a couple, couple chapters. 
in Mark in chapters 11 and 12. Just days prior, right? Jesus was being challenged by his accusers, trying to trap him in his words, to try to build some kind of case against Jesus. Find some reason to seize him, to kill him. And here again, they have him on their courts, in their home field, right, so to speak. And they can't build a case against Jesus. They even brought in false witnesses to try to drum up some case against him. But they couldn't. They couldn't get any consistent reports to come against Jesus. So up to this point, and you look at throughout our time in Mark, if you notice throughout our time in Mark, Jesus has verbally reserved declaring who he was, right? He didn't openly declare who he was. He let his actions do the talking. He let his teaching speak for itself. He let his miracles, he let all these things speak for itself. He did not openly declare himself as the Messiah. Probably, not only wasn't it time, but probably he, he knew this was going to happen. This is what will take place. Finally, the high priest Caiaphas, he asks the million dollar question. He asks Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Jesus not only revealed himself as a son of man. The one question that Jesus certainly was going to answer. Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? Notice, Jesus does not deny it. He says, I am. And then he refers to Daniel 7, this illusion of the son of man, the coming Messiah, who will sit on the throne next to the Father. But it's interesting because his response is, I am. Because that's significant for the Jewish ear as well, right? When God revealed himself through the burning bush to Moses, and Moses asked, well, whose name should I say? If they ask which God do I represent, whose name should I bring up? Remember, he's going to Egypt, right? They have all these gods, all these names. And God reveals himself and says, I am who I am. The great I am. And it's interesting that Jesus' response simply was, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And immediately the high priest tears his clothes and declares Jesus' words as blasphemous. He said it himself. He's committing blasphemy. 
And what happens? The whole council condemns him to death. And some begin to spit in his face, beat him with their fists, blindfold him, slap him, and say, if you're the Messiah, you prophesy, who's the ones hitting you now? They begin to mock Jesus. The betrayal, the kiss to the face, and now the strikes to the face. I don't know if any of you have been spat upon, got spit on the face. I'm not talking about you talking close to a person and they kind of spit on your face. You're like, oh, you know. But there is a certain level of disgust and shame when you spit in somebody's face. Now, of course, the Jewish authorities, they know they don't have the power to put Jesus to death. They have to defer to Roman law. So, next week we'll see, they send him over to Pontius Pilate in hopes to get his death sentence. But here now we're going to shift to Peter, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You too were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. It's interesting. Peter assumed that he was safe at a distance. He wasn't going to be noticed. He did not expect to be recognized in the dark among strangers. One of the servant girls the door, who was at the door, she recognized, you too were with Jesus, that Nazarene. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? It's interesting. It's easy to be able to boast about being a Christian in a safe Christian place, isn't it? Right? When we come to church, it can feel safe to, to say you're a Christian and do Christian things and talk Christian ways in a safe Christian environment, right? We can feel good about that. But when we're in an environment where it's more hostile, how would we respond? What about in the cover of night? What about when there's people around you who would accuse you and ask you questions? See, I think we can all relate to Peter, right? We can act Christian here, but when it comes to a different environment, when we feel like we can just kind of slide in and mix in with everybody else, how do we respond? I think we could all relate to Peter, because in this moment, people are asking, aren't you one of those? Maybe you face those situations. Are you one of those Jesus freaks? Now, people don't use Jesus freak anymore. That, that was more popular like 20 years ago, right, to say? Are you one of those Bible-thumping, radical, right, conservative, religious people? Those intolerant, hateful people? Are you one of those Christians? 
What was zealous Peter's response? We know initially Peter, he sought to prove his loyalty and bravery, right? Remember in the garden, the one who struck the slave's ear? John tells us that was Peter. Peter got the the sword. He went out and struck the servant's ear. Now, whenever I read that, I think either Peter was an expert swordsman or he was the worst swordsman. He either intended like to precision threat, whack, I could have got your head, but I only got your ear. Or he tried to get the head and he missed and just got the ear, right? But Peter, I'm sure, started out wanting to feel brave and defend himself. I'm not going to be the one who falls away. I'm going to defend Jesus. Jesus got the ear, healed the ear. And when they went to seize Jesus, they all scattered. But Peter went back. He tried to follow, but at a distance. But where do we see, what do we see Peter doing? Peter lies and denies. I think that should have been the title of the sermon, right? Lies and denies. But here, this is what Peter does. He says, who, me? This servant girl, this, well, we don't know how old this young lady was. When she asks him, accuses him, aren't you one of those? What does he say? Who, me? What does he say? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even understand what you're saying. How many times have we used that card? I don't know what you're talking about, right? Your parents ask you something. Did you do this? I don't know what you're talking about, right? We, we throw that card out all the time. Are you one of those? I don't know. I don't know what you know. I don't even understand. What, 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 are, what are you saying, right? We can easily throw that card out. We can relate to Peter in this moment. Look what he says. And the maid saw him, right? Peter moves scenes and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them. You are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Peter is challenged by servants, specifically a female servant initially, right? Yet Peter could not take the heat. There were others around, and they got suspicious of Peter. And it's interesting, it turns out one of the accusers was a relative of Malchus. Who's Malchus? Well, small world. Malchus happened to be the servant in whom Peter went Jedi Knight on his ear. Right? He pulled out the sword and went whack. Well, it turns out his relative was there at the scene and is there at the fire. It's like, wait a second. You were there too. What a small world. Peter thought he was safe at a distance. No one will recognize him. No one will know he's there. He could just follow at a distance. 
It's funny how the past can creep up on us into our present sometimes. And so for the third and final time, Peter denies Jesus. This time, Peter feels the heat under the collar. They didn't have collars, but you know what I mean, right? We all know the feeling of being challenged. And when we get challenged, and once we start denying something, what do we do? We feel the heat, and that sense of shame and guilt turns into what? Defense mechanism. We often use anger, right? When we're embarrassed or feel ashamed or we're afraid, it also turns to anger. And that's what happens here with Peter. Peter began to curse and swear. Now, it doesn't mean Peter's not throwing out F-bombs, all right? That's not that kind of cursing and swearing. That's not what Peter's doing. What is Peter doing? He's bringing curses upon himself. In other words, it'd be something like, may God strike me dead if I'm lying. Right? Cross my heart and hope to die, what? Stick a needle in my eye. I don't know why you would say that. Right? But that's what Peter's doing. He's saying, may God curse me if I'm lying. I don't know this man. I don't even know what you're talking about. It's interesting, right? How easily, how easy is it for us to forfeit our eternity Forfeit our faithfulness for a moment of sense of security and comfort. Right? Peter was threatened, and instead of just saying, yeah, I am, he was scared. And under the heat and under the pressure, he said, I don't know this man. May God strike me dead if I'm lying. And you know what happens? Luke tells us, in that moment, Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter realizes what happened, breaks down, and weeps. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine seeing the Lord's face as I betray the one who I claimed I would die for. Peter is broken. But see, I think his brokenness started long before that. It may have started in the garden. It may have started even before. In the moment when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I bet it broke his heart. I bet it shook him up. Wait, wait, what? Me? I'm the, I'm the most passionate one here, right? I bet in the garden when he could not stay awake probably got shook a little bit and he tried to step up with the sword but that wasn't the solution and when the first denial happens i bet he was breaking until the final moment when he broke and his heart breaks when he realizes what had happened he weeps and flees It's quite the contrast we see with Jesus and Peter here, right? 
Both are under fire. Both are confronted with accusers. Jesus faces the highest courts, highest Jewish courts. Peter faces some maidservants, some servants. Jesus affirms who he is before his accusers. Peter denies who he is before his accusers. Jesus stands confident. Peter is shaken to his core. Now we know this is not the end of the story, thankfully. And it's definitely not the end of Peter's story. And that's why I mentioned, I've mentioned in weeks before, if the apostles were going to make some kind of fictional hero out of Jesus, they sure are choosing an odd way of portraying a history of, of faith and religion. All the Gospels portray, portray, portray Peter as the one who denies Jesus. It's an odd way to perpetuate some kind of hero, religious figure, by this means. It's amazing to see this shift from the last passage we saw prior. In Gethsemane, Jesus experienced almost unbearable emotional pain as he prays before the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. But when the heat turns up, when the pressure comes upon him, where do we see Jesus? He's in full control. We saw this throughout, throughout Mark. Jesus stepped up, wasn't phased by the pressure. And now at its peak, in the moment, in his betrayal, Jesus is unfazed in his purpose. There was no case against him. And still there's false accusation. He exposed the hypocrisy, and here he stands innocent before his accusers. So you look at that picture of under pressure, under fire, and like I said, we probably can't relate to Jesus' perfection and full submission to the Father. But I think we can all relate to Peter, can't we? I think we can all relate to Peter's imperfection. Peter thought he was ready. Peter thought he was strong enough. Jesus prayed to the Father. I think it's amazing, right? That picture before this scene. What's Jesus found doing? He's praying to the Father. Jesus was ready for the moment. Peter could not stay awake. He failed to keep praying, and he failed under the pressure. Here's some warning signs I want us to draw from. We can learn from Peter in this moment. If we can find ourselves relating to Peter, here's some warning signs. If we ever find ourselves saying, I could never fall away, there's a warning sign. If you think, well, I'm so secure in my faith, I could never be the one to fall away. Be careful of your pride. Be careful of your pride. Peter could not imagine himself doing it. In your moment right now, you probably say, you know what, I'm coming back to the Lord, I'm on fire. I can never be the one who falls away. Be careful. 
Help make safeguards in your life so you don't fall away. Certainly. But the second warning sign that we can learn from Peter is, I am strong enough to resist. If you find yourself saying, I am strong enough to resist, I can put myself in environments, I will not fall into temptation. That can never happen to me. I am strong enough. I have the will to withstand. I can be around certain circles while they're doing things and not participate because I have a strong will. Be careful. Be careful of that pride. Be careful you're not relying on your strong will and rely on the Holy Spirit. Because if you're truly relying on on the Holy Spirit, probably many times the Holy Spirit may drive you away from those circumstances. And it takes strength to say no. If your peers want you to participate with them, go with them, and they say, well, you know what, you don't have to drink with us. You don't have to do those things. Just come along with us. It takes strength to say, you know what? I'll skip this time. It takes strength to be able to say, you know what? Honestly, I don't know if I can resist. And I don't want to give in. Right? If you have a boyfriend or your girlfriend, I say, that's just, just, come on, we'll be a little, but it's okay. I'll respect you, respect me. Don't go into it thinking, you know what? I'm strong enough. I could resist. Because if you rely on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit may say, you know what? Yeah, I want you to invite a third person in there just to, just to be safe. A third warning sign. If we say, I can hide safely among the crowd. If you think you can be safe among the people just to hide. At some point, the crowd will turn on you. Right? If you, if you don't want to expose yourself as a Christian, you don't want to expose yourself as someone who wants to get close to the Lord, and you just want to hide among the masses, just blend in with everybody else, follow Jesus, but at a safe distance. So I'm not seen among the crowd. The crowd will turn on you. They will ask you, wait, aren't you the Christian guy? What do you do on Sunday mornings? Why do you go there on Friday nights? Do you have a Bible? What, did, are you, what do you believe in those things? The crowd will eventually will turn on you and expose you. And you will be at that point. Will you say who you are? Or will you deny who you are? We don't, safe, we don't hide safely among the crowds when it's a hostile crowd. Fourthly, i got to wrap it up. Sorry. I love Jesus when I feel safe, but... If we find ourselves, I love Jesus when I feel safe, but meaning like, I love Jesus here at church. I love Jesus when it's comfortable. I love Jesus at home. I love Jesus when I have the music. But when I'm in different environments, I respond differently. There's a warning sign for you. There's a warning sign. Do you love Jesus in the heat and in the pressure Is that where your devotion of Jesus is? I'm going to wrap up with this. 
Peter's story doesn't end, and I don't want to end with just the warning and the weakness of Peter. Look at Peter's story. Despite all that Peter went through in 1 Peter 4.13, he says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. For if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. Peter took his moment of shame and guilt, and Jesus restored him. And Peter remembers that moment, and he says to the church, don't let that, don't let yourself be ashamed of Christ. Don't let it be, don't let it cause you to feel shame of Christ. Rejoice in the sufferings for his name. That is growth. That is what happens in failed moments. And what God can do and raise us up and restore us. And we may be able to experience, we can relate to Peter in those failed moments. I'm sure we've all experienced that at some point in time. But if we can say, God, I want to be the one that in the clutch, in the heat, under the pressure, not back down, and not saying, well, you know, know, uh, I know, sometimes I kind of go to church, but yeah, I'm not really into it. I don't get too excited about church thing. You know, I'm kind of religious, but I'm kind of not. Last, Last message I spoke on, in Deuteronomy, we saw... God exhort the people to treasure his commandments, to walk in his ways, and to fear the Lord. And my prayer for all of us is that our love for God is so much, we treasure his words, we want to walk in his ways, and we want to fear the Lord in such reverence and respect and honor that we would be offended by any accusation or any false claims, or be offended if anyone speaks against our Savior. That we'd want to come to the defense of our Lord. Say, aren't you one of those Jesus people? I'm like, yeah. What about it? <laughs> you want to know? You want to know the Lord? If we can love the Lord in such a way that we're not phased under the heat and pressure but we can be, you know what, Lord? I rejoice that I can be in this position for your name. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord God, for your goodness, your faithfulness. We thank you that you stood in our place that we can be restored, that we can be renewed, that we can know forgiveness and salvation, redemption. Lord, may we have a love for you that is so strong and undying.
that we would proudly proclaim ourselves as children of God, followers of Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And we give you praise in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.